Spotlight On is brought to you by Light, the technology platform reimagining e-commerce for live events. You can learn more about Light at light.com forward slash partnerships. That is L-Y-T-E dot com forward slash partnerships. Hello and welcome to episode 100 of Spotlight On. I'm your host, Lawrence Purrier. 100 episodes. Some kind of milestone, I suppose, or so I'm told. 100 conversations with friends, colleagues, artists, musicians, journalists, authors, business innovators, and real music fans. We started in the before times, have potentially weathered a pandemic, and now we're ready for the next 100, dog willing. This week, the spotlight shined on me. Actually, it happened back in December 2021, when my longtime friend and partner in hijinks, David Marcus, sat me down for this extended talk. David and I have known each other for 20 years, but as this talk will reveal, there was a lot of ground left uncovered all that time. He managed to pull a lot out of me, hopefully not too much, hopefully nothing that uh, bores you all to tears. But anyway, thanks so much for being along for the ride, and now, me. Look, I'd love to explore the crypto thing with you. I'm way in the rabbit hole. I've been listening to an unbelievable podcast where Tim Ferriss hosts a guy who, Balaji Srivinansan, Srivinansan, I think I'm pro- pronouncing his name right. It's one of the longest podcasts I've ever seen. It's a four and a half hour effectively monologue by this guy. It's so clear to me there's something so dramatically unique happening in the world that I just can't, I can't take my eyes off it. I'm just, I, I, I gotta know about it. I'm amazed at the things that are happening that I learn about by throwing on a podcast like Spotlight On. Asshole. <laughs> Which brings us to Spotlight On. This is, this is your hundredth episode? Yeah. I mean, there's 10 to go between where we're sitting now and when people get to hear this. So God knows what can happen in the, uh, crypt- <laughs> <laughs> the cryptographic, uh, geographic When the matrix, grid goes down but, and we never get to this. Yeah. I'm a, this, is a, sure. this is a pair play gig for me, just so you know. <laughs> well, I, I was going to say, assuming anybody's hearing this conversation other than us, yes, it's it's the 100th episode. It's a, it's a if there's a milestone, it's an interesting fun for somebody on the side of doing it. I would never have. I mean, I haven't done a hundred of anything. I was going to say a hundred of any hundred pushups is a milestone. Like a hundred podcast episodes is pretty remarkable. Well, how, why did you start this? We used to do an interview series in the physical office at Light when, when companies had those things. So Light has its headquarters or had its headquarters in San Francisco. And I would be down there or through there or on site every month or so. And for whatever reason, got the idea of let's bring in some of the people from the industry that I know or had proximity to or that were coming through San Francisco on tour for like an afternoon of a, we called it a salon series. Uh-huh. And really the idea was, you know, there's people like me and you on the business side who get to go do all the fun things and we get to go to shows and meet people. But then there's like the army of people behind us that do all the work who don't really get to go do all that stuff. So for us, that analog would be, you know, the developers, the client services, people, 
accountants, just people who are working in a music and entertainment environment, but they're not, but you really could probably enter and interchange it with any other industry and they wouldn't really know. In fact, it might be more organized and a better work experience. (laughs) So the idea was how do we bring some of that like insider fun that people on the business side get to everybody else. And so we had a few people come through the office. We did one or two at offsites. And then Nat and I were talking about it and he said, you know, why don't we just like take this ethos? If light, if one of light's sort of brand tenants is about accessibility, why don't we just bring this to the outside world and let other people hear these conversations? Because they, you know, there, there were, there were some people who thought they were fun and interesting and entertaining. Uh-huh. And so that was really the start of it. It was just like, let's take this access we have to people and give it to other people. You hear that in the first episode with uh, Ben Lovett. You can hear that you're in a physical space. There's an, there's an audience. You're mic'd in some weird way that's different from his. Like it, it felt very sort of ad hoc, but it was also January of 20. No, that's when that aired. We actually recorded it, I think, September maybe of 2019. Mumford and Sons were on tour and they were playing at the Chase Center in San Francisco. And I happened to be in San Francisco. I knew I was going to be there when they were there. And so I asked Ben to come by. So that was in our office. We were mic'd. It was videotaped. And it was actually an almost two hour conversation that wound up getting edited down to 35 minutes or so because we went, we went deep. We talked about a lot of stuff that was probably best for a four walled environment. So, so how many, episodes did you get recorded between September and the start of the pandemic? Goldie, David Goldberg was the last one before the pandemic. It was Goldie's was before the pandemic. Yeah, we recorded it, but it was like, this is amazing. It was in New York um, in a recording studio. Our our revenue team was doing an offsite. And so there's a recording studio that I've done some work at. They gave us one of the live rooms and that was the end of January of 2020. So it was during the impeachment trial, if you remember that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. You mentioned that when you're, when you're introducing it. Yeah. Yeah. We did three or four, basically. Actually, we did five. One of them, we did one with Andrew Dreskin, which never saw the light of day because it was too revealing. <laughs> it's too intimate. He, he left the office and said to me after he called me afterwards, and he's like, we can't do anything. He's like, I'm, I'm on the board of a publicly held company. Please don't release that. <laughs> well, you and I are going to have to sit and listen to that together at some point. I mean, we, I, I, I created an edit of it. That's, that's still incredibly interesting and entertaining and innocuous, but um, he wasn't comfortable with it. So the order in which you record these episodes is not the same as the order in which you release them. It, generally speaking, it is, especially now, but early on, it was not. Early on, it was not. We, we intentionally launched with Ben just because he was, you know, he was a celebrity name and we thought it was a good one to launch with. And it was a good conversation. And, you know, it was just good to launch with an artist. Yeah, for sure. But now what we tend to do, I, I prefer to record as close to air date as possible. So I don't, you know, because the world just fucking changes so much now that if we ever talk about anything timely or current or even somebody's business, like if somebody's coming on and talking about a product, I try to record them within one to three weeks of them going live. Some of them get turned around very quickly. So we're launching the new season the first week of January, and I've just recorded the first few episodes. And that's about as far out as I like to be. How do you pick your guests? It's, it's evolving. It started off being about people I wanted to talk to. 
so it was very self-indulgent, which may be obvious in some of the episodes. I might read an article and then reach out to the author or read a book and reach out to the author or have a public figure I've always wanted to talk to and reach out to them. It's amazing who will say yes. In looking at your guest list, there are some that are obvious, right? Goldie, Matt Adele, Jeremy Sirota, like the, pe- the people we've worked with, been friends with. Then there's the Rolling Stones contingent, right? And, 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 and we'll talk about that. But but there's a bunch of guests on there who I, I couldn't figure out why, what, what was the connection to you or your interests? You know, the wine guy, the guy who does the sacred healing. There's just a bunch that are just sort of like sort of distant orbits of you. And I'm wondering, it, it, and it sounds like it's because you saw an article or you read a book or like it was just, it, it's an interest that isn't necessarily tied to your uh, career. Yeah, no, for sure. For sure. I mean, I, you know, I'm into all kinds of weird esoteric stuff, but well, that I know. Yeah. Well, that, and so some of that comes across like the, the wine guy that, that writer actually was a mentor of ants when Ant was a teenager and Ant has stayed friends with him throughout his life. Ant said to me one day, you know, check out this guy. He's a, he's interesting. He's smart. He means something to me. If you're interested to talk to him. And so I read some of his work and I was like, yeah, I, I, I'm interested. The thing for me, the barrier to entry is a little bit low because I think that most people have interesting stories. If you are open, I, it's really fun to talk to like a rock and roll hall of famer or somebody from the business that I admire or I'm interested in. Like that's a, that's a, that's a real kick, but I would talk to anybody. I think that just about any person who has lived more than like four to eight years, I think there'd probably be an interesting conversation. I have a six-year-old. Like, I mean, um, I, I, I've, I've thought for a while that it would be really fun to interview teenagers, but, but anyway, yeah. So I, I just, I, I'm, I, I like, I like talking to people and it's actually, and then I'll shut up because I, I see you have some more questions, but how, how can you see what kind of questions I have? No, I see you have questions. You see it in my eyes. I see it in your eyes and in your posture. You're ready to pounce. <laughs> You're coiled. I'm listening. I'm trying to listen. So now that we've done a bunch of episodes and it's gotten a little bit of traction, there's a uh, publicist pitch us. Really? And so they'll say, do you want to talk to so-and-so about their company? So a lot of the ones, especially in the last like season and a half that are businesses mm-hmm. have generally come from publicists pitching us. And those are all really interesting because then I can learn about parts of the business I don't know enough about or that I'm interested in or some of the trend type discussions. So I just recorded a conversation with somebody who's from who does a lot of work in the sync world. And I've been interested in a while about like where sync is going. I've heard mixed things about like like a lot of other parts of the business. Sync is sort of bifurcating into like, you know, Adele getting a big end credit in a film. And then like everybody else is just commoditized. And so I I wanted to learn about the sync business. So a lot of times when I get pitched, it's an opportunity to like, oh yeah, I want to talk to that person because I want to know about what they're doing or what that, what that universe is. So what's your prep in a situation like that, where there's something you're curious about, but may not know about? Embarrassingly little, and hopefully it doesn't come across too much in the conversations. I will re, I will Google the person. I will read their LinkedIn. I will read in general, some recent press about them to see what else they've been talking about. So I don't really duplicate, like I don't want them to be bored. There's probably some things I need to cover again, just because it's relevant to what they're doing. A lot of people have like their campaign speech that they, that they're out talking about in the press. And I I want them to be able to do that, but I want to go a little bit further than that. So I'll learn a little bit about them, a little bit about their company, read a couple of recent press releases, and then try to go like one 
concentric ring further if i don't already know about their industry or sector or space i'll i'll just read the state of the art i mean because i'm like a nerdy loner i i know and i know a little bit about everything that most of the people that have come on like there's very little that's been net new to me because it's it's usually i have some interest that i've pursued half-heartedly and so i know like a little bit about a lot of things and that's that's why i have the dead end career I have. Well, we're going to get to your dead end career, <laughs> Mr. Perry. Yeah. I've never specialized in anything. So, right. Well, in the run up to this conversation, which you and I talked about a few weeks ago, or set up, I somewhat coincidentally and somewhat, somewhat because I was, I was hoping to be a little bit prepared to, to switch positions with you and, and be the interviewer. I, I stumbled across two things. One was a coincidence and one I deliberately sought out. I, I listened to a, a conversation between Larry King and Cal Fussman the Esquire interviewer, and obviously Larry King, the great broadcaster. Uh, and they were talking about King's career, but also about, you know, the art of the interview. And then I, I, I tripped across something where somebody was talking about how questioning declines very rapidly among children as they start to make their way through school. That, that a kindergarten or first grader will ask, hundreds of questions a day and that by you know sixth grade it's down to you know one or two that the mm. that the instinct to ask diminishes for better or worse and and whether we're squeezing that out of kids or not as a separate conversation but i'm curious now that you've done 100 episodes and asked presumably some significant multiple of that in questions what have you learned about asking questions oh man that's awesome there's a few things in that there are, there are a few answers there I would love to give. One is the the timing of this corresponding with the pandemic. Like, I can flat out tell you it was part of my survival and coping strategy for the pandemic. The idea that I could just talk to people and get out of whatever I was going through and just hear. And I, and I think that would have been valuable in any context. But I don't want to say the therapeutic value, but just the enrichment of going through that weird, isolating, troubling, uncertain time and knowing that somewhere between one and three times a week, I was going to have a conversation that was going to be nourishing was like... So just the opportunity to have that that level of engagement. Oh, yeah. yeah. With, with strangers, because you weren't going to shows and you weren't going backstage and you weren't striking up conversations with somebody on a flight. You talk to people on flights? Ew. I know. <laughs> I, I, I have a kind face. So that that... I, you know, I want to like make that statement as part of the answer. The other is that I don't prepare questions generally in advance. At most, if I have any notes in front of me, it's thematic. Like make sure you ask about this topic or this stuff. So that's another thing. The other thing is I don't, I try not to ask yes or no questions. That was like one of the few things I learned about interviewing was like, yes or no questions lead to one answer. Right, yes or no. <laughs> one word <Yeah>. answers. <laughs> right. Um, and so, and then I also learned about like the cadence of the interview. You know, you'll, you'll notice that most of the conversations are profile based and then they pivot into the specifics of the person's work. You know, try not to start with hard questions or deep philosophical questions, like warm them up let them know where I'm coming from. So they know there's no gotchas coming. Did you, did you have to develop those muscles over the course of the hundred episodes? Do you think you're a better interviewer on episode 99 than you were, well, which isn't in the can yet, but that you will be then on episode four? 
I'm not sure about that because I had some experience interviewing you on know, planes. Yeah, on planes. <laughs> uh, well, the, I would say I have two experiences interviewing. One was, you know, for a while I wrote, I, I interviewed artists just as like a side thing. Like, so I interviewed jazz artists and thing and and people. So I learned some of those like technical lessons about interviewing, and I like talking to people. I like putting the focus on other people. I think that that'll be a piece we could pivot to when we talk about my career work. But the other thing is like, you know, you know, this just from knowing me, I like to deflect and I don't like, I'd much rather talk about you than me. So I think that makes me a good interviewer <laughs> or, or it may, I don't, I'm not a good interviewer. I think it makes me a, it, it, it gives me the inclination to be a better interviewer because I'd rather talk about somebody else. So, I, and I want to get at their story. And I want to highlight them. So I think that that piece more than anything else is what helps because I'm genuinely interested in other people and I genuinely don't want to talk about me. So that brings up a question then for me, which is why are we talking about you? What was the moment where you said, all right, we're going to hit this milestone. Let's turn the tables. One is I had a couple of people say, oh, you should do an episode about you. And I, whatever, like that's, that seems silly. I could never think of how to do that. The 100th episode is like, it's a good milestone. I think it's a little bit of a trope. Like other podcasts do that around milestones, 100, 500, 1000. Mm-hmm. Like, so that's a convention that made me like comfortable <laughs> with, with the idea. And then the other is, um, I don't know, I feel like I have stuff to say if, if I was comfortable being asked. Well, it's funny, because I, I you know, I, as I look back at the episodes, there are a bunch that stand out for me. I mean, obviously, we, we've mentioned it, but Goldie, and Matt Adele, two of my oldest friends. And I think, you know, the same kind of vintage as you. I mean, you met Matt the same day you met me. You know, I have this really weird memory of the day we met because you guys were in this office, I think on Park Avenue or, or, or somewhere over there. Lexington uh, and 51st. Lex- Lexington, yes. And you remember the movie Being John Malkovich? Uh, we were definitely on the Malkovich floor. There, there were, I, I remember like... We climbed, we were like in on the floor, but we climbed these few stairs to your office. And I, in my memory, there's like a half ceiling. And like, I was ducking to get in there where we sat and we talked and remind me the, the man who's the guy who's since passed, who, who was the then CEO of Ultrastar. Bob Goodale. Bob Goodale. And we met because we pitched you on building a digital music download store first for your artists. And we ultimately built them for Sting and for Bowie. That was the beginning, the day one of our relationship and yours with Matt. And then Goldie and I became very close in the, in the next year. And, and we brought you into that circle because you, you were worthy of that. And I love the Jerry Casale uh, interview because I, I think you know this, but I don't know if you know this, but I, I was part of re-signing Devo to Warner in 2009 because we signed a 360 deal with Devo and they were going to be the new pride and joy of our 360 business. And, you know, listening to Jerry and, and Jerry and I spent a lot of time together and I took them to the Olympics in Vancouver where they performed and we unveiled the new blue energy dome, which is part of the, one of the, you know, part of the shtick for the new campaign. And I was so out of my depth and I was so, I was such a suit in that environment with those guys and with Jerry. And I, and I really have both incredibly fond memories of that time because I learned so much and I, and I cringe so often thinking about who, who I was in that part of my career yeah. with those artists. 
so listening to that, it's a, it's a favorite of mine. But I'll tell you what my favorite episode of yours was. It was Marco Collins, KXP. Oh, wow. Really? Wow. I just thought you guys vibed so well together. And I, I, I get the sense you didn't know each other prior. I mean, I think the episode even starts out with you guys being kind of surprised at your neighbors. And he lives like two miles away. Yeah. And you guys sort of came from the same place in terms of your love of radio, your love of music. And, and it just had a really non-businessy vibe. And you said like you, you typically start your conversations about like profiling the person, but that didn't, you didn't have that in that. You guys were just rapping and it was just cool. And I, and I just loved listening to two guys who had a lot in common connect. I mean, um, I, I'm, I, first of all, the first thing that stands out for me is that I can't believe you've listened to them <laughs> or any of them, which is amazing. <laughs> um, but yeah, and he and I actually had a bunch of conversation that, that we that did not make it into the episode. There was just some stuff that wasn't really appropriate to, to leave in. But I think that I think the the outcome or the byproduct of the, that part of the conversation it's probably what was reflected in the parts that did stay in. We definitely vibed. Have you ever connected with them since? No, we made plans to. At the only time I really ever connect with them is like Twitter comments and like retweeting. I think that might be his part of his shtick. I, I to be a little like armchair psychologist. I think there's a little like social anxiety. You know, those two episodes. In fact, him and Jerry. Like, if I had to pick people that I wish I could be friends with in real life, like I liked Jerry a lot, and I felt like I could talk to him about all, like all kind. He would go anywhere. Like, he's probably got an opinion about everything. He's super knowledgeable. Like, I love the era that he's from and their role in the era. Like, he's a fascinating guy. They're interesting people. Oh my God. They're beyond interesting. Being around, being around them for any length of time was, again, that was part of my discomfort in that era was, I was like, what am I doing here? These guys are so interesting. Mark Mothersbaugh is a fucking genius. And the Mark and Jerry relationship, I mean, it's like Lennon and McCartney and Jagger and Richards, right? Like these are two guys that have been in a band together forever, 40 years and are not the same person. And you see all the moments where they connect on stage musically and then shit that goes down in the dressing room that just, you can't believe they're still together. I won't disclose because I was lucky to be there, but yeah. And that, and, and it goes into it and, and I want to, and maybe we'll transition into it because this was the other part of the, the episode with Collins that I remember is you guys talked about kind of meeting your heroes, right? Like being being backstage, you creeping out. I think it was, was it Emmylou Harris saying some lewd thing to her that it wasn't that was, lewd. It just didn't land right. <laughs> didn't land right. And just how hard those moments are. And it, I have this, and you know, like Petty, Tom Petty for me was like a, a, an artist that I got very close to. I was very involved in his career from 2005 until, until he passed. In a, in a bunch of different ways on every side, on the label side, on the ticketing side, on the management side. And I finally got to meet him in like 2012 or something like that. And Tony Dimitriotis, his manager, introduced him to me. You know, and, and, this, I, and this is your experience too, I know, and I want to get to it. But, you know, I grew up listening to the music. Yeah. And it was one of the, he was one of the first big concerts I ever went to, with, um, the Del Fuegos and Georgia Satellites at this place called Poplar Creek, which is an amphitheater that's no longer there in Chicago. That's some good rock and roll. 
Yeah. Oh, it was great. I think I was 16 or something like that. And it just was like, oh my God, this is, this is where I want to be. And so I met him and, and Tony introduces Tom. This is David. At the time I was at Warner Brothers. And I said, Tom, yeah, it's great to meet you. You know, damn, the torpedoes was the first CD I ever bought. And he said, uh huh. And he pivots, walks away. And I'm like, fuck. I thought, you know, I thought this was going to be the moment where he, oh, that's amazing. I'm so glad I was such a big part of it. He just fucking had no interest in me telling him how great I thought he was. And that was it. That was my one moment with this guy who I was just so wrapped up in. And yeah, you fucked that up. <laughs> I totally did. And, 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 and you know what? I knew better. I knew better. I knew like, don't say it, don't say it. And it just came out. Yeah. Um, <laughs> let's pivot a little bit because that's kind of your, you know, a big part of your career is working closely with, I mean, some of the biggest legends in the history of rock and roll. How do you manage that vibe? Keith Richards, David Bowie, and the list goes on. Yeah. It's very, I mean, you know, it's very surreal. But before I answer that, the other thing I wanted to ask you was when you meet an artist for the first time that you've, that you've done work on behalf of, do you ever have the thought in your head where you want to say to them, you have no idea. Like, do you know what the fuck I've done for you? Dude, you're just actually <laughs> backstage with the Black Keys, fucking Dan Auerbach. I was like, how do you feel about the merch? Isn't the merch awesome? He's like, what? I'm like, yeah, we do all your merch. I run. He's like, fuck off. Like, I'm getting wasted after the show. Like, yeah, you sit there grinding day in and day out, worried about them, their fans, and their business. And mostly, you just have to live with, they don't really care. That part's hard. That part's really hard. And not even that they don't care, it's not even visible enough for them to have an opinion. That's the part that kills me. It's like, there's t-shirts? What? What do you mean? A t I don't remember approving a t-shirt. And then all of a sudden, there's a problem <laughs> because you mentioned that there's t-shirts. <laughs> right. Tickets, Right. I've made most of my career in tickets and putting tens, hundreds of millions of dollars in bank accounts for artists. And literally all they want to know is why the fuck are my tickets on stuff? All the good stuff you're doing, just it's, it, it, it is the hardest part because I mean, you know, and I think this is true of you, but I'll ask you, you know, I'm in the business because I fucking love being around the creativity. Yeah being around the live experiences for sure. And just being able to be a part of it. And you care so much about these artists and that it's returned in the inverse, literally. Like they really don't have any interest in you or what you're doing. And you just have to kind of be okay with that. Yeah. But yours is a little, but yours is a little different. So, right. Cause you're much more involved on the creative side. Yeah. It's a weird bridge. So if I had to like sort of qualify it or summarize it, it would be, taking the creative thing that they currently care about and helping to commercialize it or helping get it to market. And so I think that that's where I'm a little, I mean, there's, there's multiple areas where I'm very lucky, but in relation to this part of the conversation, it's where I'm lucky because they generally care about what's happening. So they may not, they may not care that there's also a, a piece of merchandise that goes with the thing they care about, but like it's a project, it's a new box set, it's a new online initiative, it's a new documentary, it's a thing that they know is happening and that they're generally involved with. And so to not like overstate it, there's some level of collaboration. So let's be specific because I think a million people listening to this, most of them probably don't know what you do with, for example, Keith Richards. So what's, what's your relationship to Keith? 
and his and his creative efforts. So for the last 12 or 13 years, my role has been whenever he has a a solo career project and specifically some kind of either archival or yeah, a non-Rolling Stones related Keith Richards project, I generally come in and perform sort of multiple roles, like to use the music industry names for the, for the roles, somewhere between producer, product manager, like label head, if you will, sort of all those functions that get the project to market. So it's producing. So if he has a new box set of an anniversary edition of a solo album, I know the milestones coming. So I work with the label that we have licensed the catalog to BMG. We pick a release date and then I work backwards. I do all the A&R. I research and nominate what the content should be. Once he's approved that, I work to get it restored, remastered. On the creative side, I work with Steve Jordan, his co-producer on his solo career to, you know, get the content modernized and cleaned up and fixed. Um, and then there's an art director who I've used for the last, for, well, for the whole time, a guy named David Gorman, who does all the creative direction and design and package design and layout and, you know, all that work. I'll generally, if there needs to be something written, I'll find the sort of the writer that we want to use, whether it's a journalist from Rolling Stone or what have you, the, that true like nitty gritty production A&R work, and then interface with the label on marketing rollout, production timelines, all that's, you know, that, that stuff. So that, that's where it starts to shift into like the product management uh-huh. aspect of it. And so I sit between the artist and the label to um, facilitate all that. Why you? It's a good fucking question. The Stones were clients of ours at Ultrastar. And when I left Ultrastar, you remember I was out on my own for about three and a half years. Yep. And shortly after I left Ultrastar, that was the end of 2008. I don't remember if it was before the end of the year or early 2009, but I got a call from Bill Zisblatt, who is Keith's business manager, longtime business manager, saying, hey, Keith and Jane, Jane Rose, Keith's manager, have this project that Keith wants to work on. They could use some help with it. Will you come for a meeting at RZO, which is Bill's company, his offices? And, you know, I don't really need to know any details for behind when I get a phone call like that. So that's probably answer one as to why me, which is I'll show up without a lot of information. <laughs> and, so, and, and I got there and they had a silver CDR of, of a project. And Jane said, Keith wants to put this out. We're not really seeing the action we want from labels because, you know, don't forget it was a weird time, 2008, 2009. Yeah. She said, so we think maybe we should just do it ourselves and keep all the control. And what do you think? And that's really how the first project started. But that's that's the that's the like mechanical answer. I think I've asked Bill, like, why the Michael, why? Why do you me like, why do you bother to call you? Why do you call me? And to paraphrase, and hopefully it's not speaking out of school, he said, because when you say you're going to do something, you do it. Huh. And I think that, you know, if I could extrapolate on, on that a little on, bit. But hang on a sec. There's, there's got to be more, right? There's a level of, you, you, ha- you have a relationship to the content that he must be aware of, right? Like, 
there's lots of people who do what they say they're going to do, aren't there? I don't know. I mean, you tell me. I think there's a few things as it relates to Keith. One, I knew the business. I knew all the players because I'd worked with the Stones for a long time. So there was a level of I knew how to behave in that world, which I think is important. They There were other projects they could look to and say, oh, he was involved in these projects and did his part. So there was like a safe hands element to it. I think that there was the aspect of, you know, having worked with Bill for almost 10 years at that point on and around Ultrastar and other projects. So he knew like I could, I could be put in front of artists and managers and behave well. Because Arzio was one of the funders of Ultrastar, yeah? Bill was a co-founder of Ultrastar, yeah. And, and then the, I think also, you know, they knew I was a fan and Keith Partisan, but I wasn't the creepy fan who like, I wasn't a star fucker. Like you I didn't care. say Exile on Main Street was the first CD I ever bought when you met him. Yeah, that's exactly. <laughs> yes. I, I didn't. I want. I didn't want to put too fine a point on it. But like, they knew I cared. They knew I would be an advocate for the integrity of the project. And again, I'm speaking like on behalf. Nobody has said this to me, so you know, I'm answering based on what I think the the reasons are. And so all those things came together. But I, th- I, I mean, I, I'm pretty sure that's what it was. Like safe hands, trusted, proven cares about the content, won't do anything too stupid, won't get over my skis um, in terms of like, you know, make recommendations. You know, I just, yeah, I think that's trusted hands. And so are you friends with Keith Richards at this point? I would, I no, I mean, that would be, how do you define friends? I don't, I don't know. You define it. I think that I have a long-term professional relationship that is friendly. And that when I see him, we laugh and talk and he knows the projects I've been involved with. He's very kind and generous. And I don't think he would call me. I don't think I'd be the first person he'd call if he were in jail. I mean, you know, so professionally friendly. How big of a Stones fan were you when you were a kid? They were the very first band that I ever heard that I remember hearing. Like I, the Stones were my favorite band since I was a child other than Kiss. And, you know, that's because we grew up in the seventies and they were the comic book superheroes, but the stones were the first since I was four years old. Like I remember the first time I heard the stones to this day. I don't know if it's an accurate memory, but I have a memory of it. I used to write them letters when I was in elementary school. I was just a pretty big stones fan. You were a big letter writer. I mean, that, that was also, I remember that from the Collins interview, like you wrote a letter to a promoter when the Kiss show got canceled and and that was how you knew that you were connected I, i'd like to go back and read some I of those still have letters. that letter i have yeah, i have the letter i got in, re- in I, response i have no doubt so let's stay with the kid thing what was your childhood like um it was fine i grew up outside of new haven connecticut in a town called hamden which if it's known for anything is known as the home of eli whitney inventor of the cotton gin and quinnipiac university uh, a suburb at one end a very urban suburb where it touched New Haven at the other end, a very rural suburb, woods, mountains, farms. So I had that, like, you know, I had a very like seventies, early eighties childhood in terms of like, you know, you could leave the house in the morning and then come back at dinner time. Yep. Not a lot of adult supervision, ride my bike for, to the ends of the earth and back, hang out in the woods, played little league baseball. Um, you know, it's sort of in a way, in that way, like, I idyllic in terms of I, I think people of our generation talk about that time a lot differently. There's a lot about it about it that was probably incredibly inappropriate, but as kids, it was fun. It was yeah, it was everything, right? I, I lived the same way. 
get on your bike in the morning, come back at dark. Yeah. I, I think a lot about the dark side of that, especially as I have young adult children, which was, you know, there was too little adult involvement, especially as a teenager. Like I, I probably could have used either more direction or more input, but it was fun as hell. And where did music fit in that? I mean, it was everything forever. Like from the time I was a I mean, almost all of my childhood memories revolve around music in some way, like being alone with my records, categorizing them, organizing them, listening to them, holding them. Who introduced you to music? Like what was the, what was the first thread you pulled on? There's probably a couple answers, but like the, so I'll give you, I'll give you like the couple of fast ones the, you know, the stones thing. Like I had an uncle, I had, my mom has a lot of brothers and sisters. So there was like an age range of, of aunts and uncles and and cousins, I had a lot of cousins. And so I had, one of my uncles was a big Stones fan and his kids were, they grew up around that music. So like I got exposed to that music, like through them, just having records laying around and we would just pick up the records and play them. Like adults who weren't like stay away from the records. Yeah, yeah, right. But also my mom was big into music. She had a lot of records. She had like what I would call like good mainstream classic rock, like Joe Cocker, The Doors, Janis Joplin, like good stuff you know, and she didn't listen to it as much when I was a little kid. She had kind of moved on to like more AOR type music in the seventies. She listened to like Barry Manilow and stuff like that, but the records were around. And so like, you're not going to look at a Doors album and be like, what the fuck is that? And not try to hear it. Like it was just, it, it was just very, it was very alluring. And for the first like nine or 10 years of my life, I was an only child. So I spent a lot of time alone, like rabbit holing around music. The radio was a big, big part of my life. I listened to the radio all the time. Yeah. You know, and then just trying to find TV shows that had music. Like I would even watch solid gold. You know what I mean? Like if it was, if it had music in it, I was going to pay attention. And were all your friends into music too? Or were you just the weirdo who liked music when you were little? I don't remember early in, I think early in elementary school, Music wasn't the thing that kids rallied around. Although I do remember, again, like there was that specter, like Kiss was always lurking because kids just like they, they kind of crossed the line into like toys. Comic and, books, yeah. And comic books, yeah. No so one's was, ever seen them with their makeup off. I remember, I can remember being in the, the, the elementary school gym where I grew up talking about Kiss and like how no one had ever seen. I have that, that's visual in my head. Yeah. But it was it was like not necessarily about the music. No, it was about I, I've got everyone they, when they each did the albums with their faces on them, like you know the Gene Simmons and the Paul. And the, yeah, yeah. So it was not until like the second half of elementary school that music became as kids were getting older, right, and like maybe started to have like teenage siblings where there was music around. So I would say by like fourth and fifth grade, music became more of a thing where everybody like I remember Queen was like. Queen was the biggest band in the world for like a few years and everybody I knew liked Queen. And then by like the early eighties when MTV hit, like music definitely was, that was, that was definitely my, my common ground. Cause I wasn't good at sports. I wasn't that interested in sports. My extracurriculars were all about music. And you play music. Yeah. I mean, that's generous. <laughs> well, uh, as someone who, who wishes they could play music and has tried many times and can't do it, I'm, I'm happy to be generous. I, I feel like I've seen a video of you sitting in on a, like a jazz trio somewhere on keyboards or something like that. 
I don't know. I fuck around. I, yeah. Yeah. I don't want th- th- that story. If we're talking about the same one. Um, yeah. I mean, I play, I played in bands in high school. I played in bands for a while after high school. I, pl- I played in bands till I was like in my mid twenties or so and then stopped and, and then fuck around here and there. I, I play more now alone or with, you know, with, because of technology, like it's fun again. Yeah. I mean, I, I definitely, I mean, if you told me I could find a couple of middle-aged guys and we could like be in a black Sabbath cover band, I would definitely audition. You live in fucking Seattle. They're right next door. Yeah. I don't get out of the house. I'm not saying I'm going to do it. I'm saying if you, if you brought it to me, (laughs) um, but yeah, it's, uh, there's the, it's really fun to play with other people. It's really fun to play with a drummer. Like the playing with a drummer changes everything. It's funny. You know what I appreciate about live music and the reason, and, and I have some, I have two very close friends from high school who are both musicians. I was, I was the label. They were the band. One was a, a, just a spectacular drummer and the other one's just a multi-instrumentalist and a keyboard player primarily, but I'm the live guy. They're the recorded guys. But the thing that I love about live is I love the athleticism in it. Like the reason I'm into jam bands is I love when watching and hearing people listening to each other and playing off each other and playing together. And I could probably care less ultimately about the production on a particular record than about watching those people execute that live and go and take it somewhere and take me with them like that for me music and live and you talk about playing with the drummer that i just that's why i want to be a musician because i want to have that physical athletic experience if those are the right words and so when you say that it it totally makes that you know i've thought about that forever it's funny you say that though because i mean i love live music obviously it's it's where it all comes together I also know enough about the recording studio that there's a few songs. We'll we'll have to do this someday on the side where there's a few songs where whenever I hear them and if I'm with somebody, I can kind of break the song down and I'll say like, you you need to listen to this. Like, okay, here's the first round of the chorus. Hear how it changes the second time. Listen to what happens the third time. And then listen to this. Like, I love to, I love it when I can recognize that in a song and there's something that really, really bowls me over when a song is well-constructed in the studio. Not like overproduced, but well-constructed, it fucking floors me. And I would say one of the songs, I would challenge you to go listen to You're So Vain by Carly Simon. And you can hear that. You could hear what I'm talking about. It's such a well-arranged song. So you grew up in music and the Stones are your favorite. Did you want to be in the music business? What did you want to be? I, I don't know. I don't remember is the short answer. I don't remember for sure. You know, I had like when I was a little kid, I remember like I wanted to be an astronaut. <laughs> <laughs> That's original. <laughs> but that, I definitely wanted to be an astronaut because I was really into the space shuttle. That was really interesting to me. Mm-hmm. But then I don't, I don't really remember for sure if I wanted to stay in music. I don't think I had... It's part of it's it's probably still part of my problem is that I don't know if I had a specific aspiration. I just had a lot of interests and I wasn't really disciplined. So, you know, the other thread through my life was technology. I always was interested in technology and and had access to and owned computers very very early on. I thought I wanted to get into computer science, but still was making music, playing music, 
but I, you know, I, I think there was like a brief, brief minute where I thought, oh, like we could do something with the band. Um, like everybody, I think, who plays music in a band for a while. But when I realized like I wasn't good enough to do that, I was always the one in the band who like did all the hustling stuff of like getting gigs and making sure we got paid and like booking the recording studio. Like I liked that part of it always printing the tickets if we were going to put on a show, like all that shit. And so I'm definitely in music because, well, I don't know that I could be successful. Like I talk to people that are like, you know, heads of marketing in the music business. And I think like, would you really be the head of marketing if you were like at a real company? (laughs) You know, they actually like, they're not just like taking out ads. So how did you get to Ultrastar? Okay, that's a different question then. I guess it's a different question because it sounds like you're accidentally in the music industry. Yeah, I think that's and right. so and and Ultrastar is really. I mean, you had some some early thing with CD Universe. Is that right? Yep. That, that's kind of the music industry, but more kind of e-commerce. How'd you end up at Ultrastar? Because that's now you're now you're I think in the music industry for the first time. Yeah, CD Universe is the key though. So we have to kind of talk about that a little bit. So I went to school, I went to just local state school for computer science. And what I realized when I got, because my father gave me the, you're going to go into the Marines or you're going to go to college conversation. And I was like, well, we know what I'm picking. (laughs) I wish there was a door number three, but in the absence of door number three. But what I realized then was a couple of things. One, computer science school at that level, not at like a a true like engineering, you know, not at like a Georgia tech or MIT or Stanford, like at a, at the local state college level, you're not breeding engineers really, or, or like theoretical computer scientists, you're minting coders who are going to go work like at a bank or some shit. And, and it's a lot like kids who go to automotive school. I've told this story a lot of times. I'm sorry if I've even said it to you, but like when you're in high school, there's kids that could like, they could take a car apart and put it back together. They just know how to do it. And they don't really need to go to automotive school, but they go to get the certificate so they could work at the dealership because you have to have that piece of paper. That's what my computer science program was like. Like there were kids who could like, they could, they were just logic and math and they knew how to do it. And they could, they were only there because they needed the, it was still a time. It was like the pre.com world where you needed the credential to go get a job at a bank. You had to go to school basically to be in, to be an engineer, be in computer science. And so it really sucked because I was surrounded by people that were really good at it innately. And just like with music and other things, I struggled just to suck, <laughs> like just, <laughs> just to hang on, you know what I mean? And it was really demoralizing. So that's sort of one data point to keep, to hold for a second. The other was I got into a car accident my second or third year of school and I didn't get like seriously hurt, but I got jacked up. I have a rotator cuff injury, hurt my back. Like I was fucked up enough, but I got a little bit of a settlement. And, you know, when you're in your early 20s and don't really have any direction and somebody drops some loot on you, I was like, hmm. And I didn't really have anybody like coaching me on what to do with it. So I opened a bookstore. But so but here's the important thing why I'm telling you this long version of the story is that so I had a bookstore. I also had a mail order catalog, which really kept the bookstore afloat. But because of my technology interest and background, I was always selling online. Like even back then, like I was selling on BBS systems and early CompuServe and AOL. 
and I knew about the web and I was in New Haven and I used to use the computer labs at Yale and like the very, very early web stuff was on my radar screen. I knew about it. I heard about it. Cool. I didn't, I didn't know what it was, but, or what it was going to be, but I had like one of the first commercial websites. And I say that because it doesn't mean shit. I had zero vision, but I was in early. And my first, the first website for my store was a form where you could come request the mail order catalog. So unlike Jeff Bezos, who said, I'm going to put every book known to man on the internet. My version was you could request my mail order catalog, <laughs> but I started getting requests from all around you were the this world. Close. I was so close. <laughs> That's the story of my life, but I would send the catalogs out. And then like six weeks later, I'd get orders from all around the world. And I was like, I'm an international businessman now. But then I had a website. And so now we're like getting into 94, 95 and other businesses locally. were just like, I need to get some of this internet thing. How does it work? I started making money, helping other people put up websites. And then Chuck Bielman started CD Universe and through a mutual friend, went in and met with him and he needed somebody to like help on the marketing and biz dev side. And that that so I started working at CD Universe and I had somebody else keeping the bookstore open. I'd go in at the end of the day, close out the cash register, ship books. And like that was my little life. Yeah. The bookstore was like every year I'd make just enough money to keep going another year. It was really hard. It was at the time when like the big box stores were everything. It was hard. I loved doing it, but it was hard. What was the what, was there a focus of the bookstore? Where did you carry? So it was basically twofold. It was twofold. If you drew a line down the middle of the store, it was basically a mirror image. So one side of the store would be like history, psychology, religious studies, theology, philosophy. And the other side of the store was the mirror image of that stuff. So occult, new age, conspiracy theory, UFO. And so it was like the the, the weird fringe pop side and the academic side of those wow, type of I like social that. sciences, basically. Did people get that? Oh, yeah. And I had, I had clientele that only wanted one or the other Yeah, because I was right on the edge of the Yale campus in the, in like the grad student neighborhood. And then I'd get people that wanted both. I'd want to just stand in the middle and look back and forth and kind of figure out like, where are the edges here? And the name of the store was the space between. So that there we go. That's where I would have been. Yeah. And so I wish I still had the domain. I had the domain for a while, but yeah, if I, if I, I, that, that, that's still my vision for a bookstore. Like if I could do it again, that's what it would be. And I would fail again. Okay. So, so, so you're at CD universe. How do you get to Ultrastar? Oh, okay. And so Bob Goodale, who you talked about earlier was one of the co-founders of Ultrastar. He worked for David in, in David's management office for a long time. David Bowie, David Bowie. Sorry. And Bob was doing a project for Robert Smith and the cure. And it's been a long time. I don't remember the exact nature of Bob's relationship with The Cure, but he was looking for a fulfillment partner for like a, this, this direct-to-consumer CD thing that The Cure were going to do through their website. And so we did a little partnership deal. Or, so CD Universe was part of his Cure promotion. And that's how I got to know Bob. And Bob was a fascinating guy. Like He was into all kinds of shit. He was into music. He was into technology. Bob was like, he was into technology, a little bit of like futurist, if that like a lowercase F futurist, like he thought a lot about technology. He was connected enough. And, but you know, he had so many interesting, fascinating interests. Like he was really into um, animal communication. 
like Coco the gorilla. I think he met Coco. <laughs> like he went and hung out with Coco. That's amazing. He, he and his wife were really into birds. And like, I don't know if you know about Alex the parrot. I think Alex lived either at MIT or in Cambridge, but Alex is a parrot or was a parrot that seemed to have a facility with language that could communicate. And Bob would like go spend time with Alex. Just a really interesting guy, really into mobile and virtual reality. Like he had all these virtual reality hardware demos, like in the back of the office and stuff like set up and we would go play with them. He was a curious guy. My perception, especially having you know, the benefit of time. He just had a lot of wonder. He would just, he would talk to people and take meetings. And like, what seemed like a lack of focus was, I think, really just Bob having a lot of wonder about the world. And so I spent a lot of time with him. Like I'd go to New York and go to his apartment and we'd hang out and talk, or we'd go out and have coffee. And we just talked a lot about stuff. And he had this idea about private label ISPs. And oh, right. BowieNet. That's what BowieNet was. And the yeah. original version of his idea was, if you remember at the time, private label credit cards were a big deal. Mm-hmm. And where a lot of the action was, was in the cause space. So you could get like the World Wildlife Fund credit card and a percent of all your purchases would go to World Wildlife Fund. Bob wanted to do that with ISPs. He thought people don't give a shit where they get their internet access from. And if you tell them they could get it from a provider and, you know, a, a, a percent or two every month of their $9.99 a month went to the World Wildlife Fund, they'll probably use that. And so that's where it started. And it very quickly over the course of a few months became about celebrities. And just like the credit cards did, right? It, it became, there was a Rolling Stones credit card and everything else, a Peter Max one. It became about well, what if you got your internet access from your favorite artist? And by the way, they have built-in distribution because their CDs, which were also the delivery platform for ISP dial-up software. Right, right, right. And so I, I was there at the very beginning of like riffing on that stuff with him. We spent hours talking about it. And before you knew it, he had David and Bill and Joe Raskoff on board and they were launching BoeingNet. And so I was always there on the outside. Like, I don't want to say, I don't want to overstate my role. I was advising Bob. Like, I I think I was a useful sounding board. Yeah. Always stayed involved with Bob and sort of at arm's length, the the first, the early parts of Ultrastar. And then after a couple of years, Bob was like, come be part of it. Like, come do this. This is foolish. And so. And so Ultrastar was the Stones, Bowie, Sting. Who who else? I mean, the the thing that, distinguished ultrastar to me back then was the roster was the top of the top yeah that so but there's a little bit of a gap to fill in so the first versions of ultrastar were it was basically boeing so ultrastar was the business entity that built boeing which was david's isp and fan community mm-hmm. and then it for lack of a better way to say it it kind of it was it was aimless for the first couple of years, like they signed, as we all were back then. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I, yeah, and I don't I didn't mean that in a loaded way, but like they signed like Hanson, Bop. Yeah, which at the time, yeah, it wasn't trivial. Um, they signed the Yankees, I think the Cleveland Browns. Like, so the idea was you get your dial-up internet access, and it came with all the things internet access came with, like news, sports, weather, all that stuff, like provided on a commodity basis. But then over here, there was the little universe of that 
property. So David Bowie content, Yankees behind the scenes, chats with Derek Jeter, whatever it was. And they raised a bunch of money from SFX. If I remember correctly, it was 10 million on a hundred million valuation back in 99 or 2000. <laughs> and, uh, and then the dot-com implosion happened and it went from like 60 employees and great furniture down to 12 of us in that Malkovich office. And we had to rebuild and we had, you know, we had enough business from the core brands, the core properties, especially Bowie net to keep going. As long as we kept overhead low, we could keep going. And, and then the stones came knocking at mid late 2001. And that we could talk about that more if you want, but basically the, I'll take it to the, the, the punchline is that signing the stones changed the company, right? Because it went from, we used to have to explain what we did and what it was, and then why we should be the ones to do it. Like the sales process sucked because it started from, I don't even understand what you're selling to, oh, okay, this is the thing the stones are doing. That seems good enough for them. <laughs> but at that point, we had jettisoned the ISP part of it. And what it really became was artist-focused subscription communities, yep. fan clubs, digital fan clubs. We hated calling them fan clubs. They were artist subscription communities, <laughs> but everybody else called them fan clubs. You know, pun intended, synchronicity, right? You and I meet in, I think it was 99. Actually, it was, oh, it was 2002, I think, maybe. One or two. I was working, because I was working with Adele at Music Now. It was post-Radio Wave, which was my aimless startup that crashed and burned when the planes at the World Trade Center. Then I went to work, work for Music Now. That's when we pitched the download store for Bowie and Sting. And then I had a, a few years of just screwing around, Yahoo Music, Music Match, Music Now, just consulting. And you and I, I think, stayed in touch. I'm sure we did. But then I got pulled over to Ticketmaster by David Goldberg in 2005, moved to LA in March. And I think in June, you walked back in the door with the Stones Shelly Lazar, Stones are going to go out and do Bigger Bang, right? And maybe my, maybe my years are a little bit off here, but Stones are going to go do Bigger Bang and we're going to bundle fan club subscriptions or tickets at the, at the, at the front door in the presale, right? Buy your tickets at a hundred dollar fan club subscription. And you remember it like 80% correctly. <laughs> really? What yeah. am I missing? What am I missing? What am I misremembering? Uh, just some of the, well, first of all, we did stay in touch. That's when we became more friends than anything else because we ran out of business to do together, but we stayed in touch. You would come to New York and we would hang out and you were still in Chicago, I think. I was in Chicago until 2005. So yeah. from, from the time we met until 2005. So the meeting with me, you, Goldie and Shelly was in LA, I think January of 2005 because the campaign rolled out in May. So I was a consultant for Ticketmaster. So that might've been why I was there because I didn't start full time until March. Yeah. So that was our, that was Ultrastar's second go around with the Stones. Yeah. And what had happened between the first and second go around was the U2 debacle where U2 had made early access to tickets part of their fan club offering. And then they announced their tour and they signed more fan club members than they could service with tickets. And then they had a bunch of technology, you know, all the things that always used to happen. Their website crashed, tickets were controversial, blah, 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 to the point where the band apologized to their fans on the Grammys. Oh, right. Yeah, remember that? Yes. And so when the Stones came back around for their second go-round, we had two 
two missions, we two directives we were given. One was we need to do much bigger numbers than we did the first time. Mm-hmm. And we can't have a U2 scenario. What we cooked up together was, well, the way to thread both of those needles was to not limit ourselves to the number of tickets that a fan club could have 8% access to. The time, yeah. yeah. And let's tap into broader distribution. So the net was what you said towards the end a minute ago, which was, why don't we sell the fan club membership and the tickets in one bundle at the ticket point of purchase? At the pre-sale. And so people who were guaranteed to get tickets, because if they were able to buy tickets and add their fan club membership, they were de facto guaranteed tickets. And if they didn't want the tickets that were available because of quality or city or what have you, they didn't have to buy a fan club membership. Right. Wait till the onset. Yeah. And then there was another component where we also sold the fan club membership directly through the Stones website and gave you early access to tickets. But the big innovation there, which kind of foreshadows my future with light is that we had a money back guarantee. So if you, if you happen to buy your membership decoupled from tickets and you got to Ticketmaster or wherever tickets were sold at the time and tickets weren't available, we just gave you your fan club money back. If you, if you weren't going to get what you wanted in terms of tickets, we didn't want to keep your membership money. We always tried to have the offering be clear that it wasn't just about tickets, but we knew that in the fans mind, so many of them were joining just for the ticket benefit that it wasn't worth fighting with the fans over. And that was a really, it seemed stupid, but it was a big innovation at the time because nobody liked to give the money back for anything. And so this, it was a great look for the stones. They did something very fan friendly. It made it a lot easier to charge the premium pricing that they liked to charge because they were actually providing a premium value. Mm-hmm. And it really minimized unhappy fans. Yeah. So it was, it was, and, and we came up with that sitting around that conference table that afternoon. In Goldie's office. Yeah. In Goldie's office. And I think if I remember correctly, not to undermine the myth too much, first of all, it was definitely the first time anybody did that in music. So we win that one. But I think the, I think the idea was born of, you got, there was something else you guys were bundling in the context of the King Tut exhibition. You are, you had already had a model. God, of, what a great memory. Yeah. You Good were bundling you. something with tickets. And, Goldie uh, had done Goldie had done something with King Tut. That's right. That's right. And th- and that that sparked the idea. But it's funny, you know, we're here because of those moments throughout our careers. You and I are here because of those moments throughout our specific careers. We're having this conversation because that was a seminal moment for me at Ticketmaster in terms of my connection deepening to you, my relationship with Charlotte Lazar, who I'd never met until that meeting and who I ultimately bought SLO, right? And she became nominally an employee of mine, but, but a friend. And Good I, you know, right, exactly. <laughs> uh, but I loved her and, and being able to be a part of her world, tremendous fun. It, you know, I asked you what you wanted to be when you were a kid. I always wanted to be in the music business. I had no idea what it meant and I had no clue how to get into it because I didn't know anybody in it. I, I, I knew nobody. And I sort of fumbled my way into this slot of Ticketmaster. They make me the head of the music services team. I don't know anybody. I can't do anything. I literally was like, and then you guys walked in and now I'm working with the Stones and we're building technology. And then we did a ton of stuff with you guys. And all of a sudden I was in the, I was in the universe. But you're welcome. <laughs> yeah. No, but, but, but it's, I, I find it to be remarkable. I mean, I think as you, as, as I look back now on, you know, my career, and I think about where you are in your career and like you start out the stones are the first band you, you remember hearing 
And now you're Keith Richards, executive producer. And that's after 20 years of meaningful work with the band, breaking new ground in technology. And the same for me, right? I mean, do you think about the the mystical, I don't even know, that's not the right word, but the the metaphysical sort of component of all of this? Uh, way too often. Maybe actually, let, let me let me talk about this for a second. So I think about that a lot, how it makes no sense that that I would be doing this for them. Like there's a billion people in the world that would want the gig that could probably do a better job. Like there's all, there's all kinds of things wrapped up in that, but here I am, I keep getting invited back or at least I haven't been thrown out. And yeah, it's, it's, it's really bizarre. And so when I try to apply logic to it, it falls apart. Other people help me think about it a little bit better. Like other people can say things I can't say, or can have observations I can't have. Like, you know, maybe I'm good at what I do. Maybe I'm respectful of people. Like, I don't, I don't really know what it is about why I still get to do it, but it only makes sense metaphysically. I don't think it makes sense logically. And I wish there was a way to package it up to make it be literally karma. I, I'm not, and I'm not using that in a silly sense, but in the, the, the things you put in the world, you get back and, and inevitably nothing's too radically far off, right? Like you start with the stones and whether or not you want to be an astronaut, like the love of that and the putting, being good and doing good things and being respectful, ultimately all those pieces just sort of stay kind of glued together in some fashion. Well, I would say this, I am an astronaut for sure. Like I've gotten to explore the unknown reaches of the music business and technology. Like I, I, it's really hard for me to own that and to say it out loud, but I know in my heart of hearts that it's true. Like we've been involved in things nobody did before. I continue to try to do things nobody did before. That's such a great way to say it. That's a really awesome way to phrase it. And is, and is that the thing that keeps moving you finding that edge and exploring? Yeah. And I think it's part of why, and again, like, so here, the danger in this conversation is that I've always believed that a big reason why I get to continue to do this stuff is that it's not about me and I don't make it about me. And I've seen people who come and go in all these universes and the ones who don't get invited back are the ones who make it about them. And so like, I'm as self-promotional as the next guy, but I try to remember, like, it's not about me. I've told people everywhere I've worked, you know, the artists pay our salaries. Like if the artists go away, we're done. And so I try to, to have that ethos. But I know what I do for them. And I know that every time a new project comes along, I don't want to just put out another Keith Richards box set. It's not good for him. It's not good for the fans. It's not good for me. But if I'm excited about it and it's sort of tickling me, then there's something there that will get other people excited. And maybe it's because we uncovered great new music and it's part of the box set, or we found a live album nobody's ever heard before. Maybe it's we found some new way to build a box that has a new gimmick to it that's fun to play with. Like, I think that that's important, like continuing to do it a little bit differently, even if it's a paradigm that's been done before, like, what could we bring to it that's different? I, I, I believe that that is a big part of it. You continue to have that success. How do you not breathe your own exhaust? How do you not make it about you? How, is, that a, is that a 
something you have to remind yourself of, or do you just think you're naturally kind of self-effacing in that way? Yeah, my self-effacing and low self-esteem. Right. Um, because I'm never, it's never, there's nobody clamoring to make it about me. You know, well, it, I, the, the, the one clamoring would be you. Yeah, but that's uncouth. <laughs> wow. Look, I mean, I, you know, I, I'll confess, the, the, and I agree with you, and it's a practice of mine that sometimes I get wrong, which is I get, when, when I get tagged, it's because I made it about me. When I stumble, it's because I, I got too wrapped up in, and when we started this conversation, I think I, I referenced Scott O'Neill, do you want to be right or do you want to be effective? I stumble over wanting to be right. And in, in, in wanting to be right, you are definitively making it about you. Those are the moments where, you know, professionally I've had setbacks. And I think together we've broken a lot of new ground. I've done, I've been lucky enough to work at, you know, one of the biggest music technology platforms on the planet and have a lot of resources to be able to do things that I'm passionate about because I think they make a portion of the live entertainment business that I love better for the artist and for the fan. But there are moments where I make it about me and inevitably that's a disaster. So for me, that's something that I have to be mindful of and I'm not always good at it. So I just wonder if that, is that a practice of yours or you just, is it just low self-esteem? It's mostly low self-esteem, but no, I've, I mean, I have the same, I have the same issues. Like I can think about a couple of times where it's generally like when I've behaved badly, like if I'm getting mad about something, it's usually because I'm upset about the situation I've been put in. It's not because the project's at risk. It's because I have like reputational risk or I'm just annoyed because it's inconveniencing me or making me do it in a way that's outside the ideal of how I want to do it. That's sort of the downside to a lot of these projects is that as time has gone on, I have a lot of leeway and like a lot of discretion with, with some of the more, some of the artists I've worked with for a long time, there's a trust there. And so for lack of a better way to say it, my vision creeps in a lot. It's always theirs. Like I, it's not like I put an artist's name on my vision but like I get to have a lot of the ideas and I get to I get to run with a lot of the things. I get to do a lot of it the way I want to do it. And so yeah, when it's about me, it's when it's when my vision for it's getting fucked with or my timeline or my when I make it about me. Yeah, that's it's definitely it. That's when it's the worst. But the other piece is I get to step out front just enough that, you know, like on the Bowie project, I got to be the the spokesperson for it. And so I get to talk to the guy from Reuters or the person from CNN or whatever it is. Like I get to do that and that's fun and it's ego gratifying. And I like that part of it. Like I, I like to craft the sound bites. I like to test them on the audience. I like talking to journalists. Like it's, it's fun for me and I've gotten good at it. I used to not be good at it. Now I think I'm good at it. So that scratches that part of it. Like, and you know, you have to be careful what you say so it, you don't make it sound like it's about you. I'm always deferential, but that gets, you know, it's fun to, to get to do that part of it. I want to ask you about the Bowie project, Bowie 75, but, but, but while we're here, you're a, an individual contributor for Keith in a way, right? You're an individual contributor in a way on Bowie. You've also been a CEO, a president, you've run big organizations, you've been a cog in a big wheel, you were at Amazon. How do you think about leadership and your role as a leader and your your practice of leadership? Mm. 
I feel like you're asking me a lot of questions that you should ask other people about, <laughs> about me, but I think very similarly. So where I feel like I've been the best leader is also where I feel like I've been the best individual contributor. And so specifically a few things, I like to be a storyteller leader. It's one of the things I think I'm good at is painting a picture, a credible picture. I've never been a visionary. I'm not a product visionary. I don't, I don't see the future, but I can articulate the mission or the mandate in an exciting way and break it into achievable chunks and articulate that to an organization really well. I can do it up and down. Uh I didn't think I, I didn't know I could do that till I went to Warner. I knew I had parts of it, but it really came together for me there. When you were, when you went from Artist Arena to We Are. Yeah. And even during that transition, like when you and I basically had to make the case to save, to preserve what, what Artist Arena had built and to even paint the picture of what could be done with it and why they should keep it. I mean, the easiest answer, I, I, I give Cooper a lot of credit. He could have just said, ah, shut it down. Like this thing's a fucking pain in the ass. I hate it. Make it go away. And you know what? If he had done that, they wouldn't have what they have today, which is an incredible, incre- I mean, the new Wea, the whole rebranding they rolled out. Like I, I love watching from the side what they've accomplished. I feel like we, we did that. And when I was there, I used to tell the team, you know, if you count Warner Chapel, it's a 200 some odd year old company. Chapel Publishing is from the early 1800s. And to be part of that and to help that organization figure out the future and be part of its future. I used to tell people it's like a massive brick wall and we've got our names on one of the little plaques on the <laughs> And that was good enough. That was good enough for me because before that, everything I'd ever done and built, there, it was gone. There was no evidence of it. If it didn't exist on my LinkedIn profile, there's no evidence that Ultrastar existed. There's no evidence. I mean, CD Universe is still there, but I played a role in it, but I don't know. I don't feel the same ownership of that. But, you know, the startups and the schemes and the ideas, it's all gone. And the, the group that's at Warner generates hundreds and hundreds of millions of dollars a year, serves hundreds of artists, employs probably hundreds of people. It's got a real path to the future. And like that, we built that. We started that. Yeah, it's funny. I, you know, I look back at that time. And again, like I wish, I wish, and this is going to sound ridiculously trite. I knew now, I knew then what I know now, right? I mean, like I, I could have been so much better and I get to do that now. And like, I, and I'm having the experience I wished I'd had at Warner we kind of knew what we were doing. I kind of didn't understand the organization. I really was new to the record business. And I, I think I misunderstood how resistant the record people were to how, you know, I, I won't name names, but there were a couple of folks who were not, still senior executives there who hated the idea of 360 rights. It was just so in the way of being able to sign the artists and put out the records. And, and you know, we were there at a time when the record industry was at the lowest of its lows. I wish I felt more attached to what we did. And, and I do recognize that we did really kick that thing off. I learned so much in, bizarrely, in, in the startup I did after I left Warner, no evidence of, it, of its existence. But I learned so much about getting shit done in an organization, which I've taken now to Ticketmaster. And I think I've, I, I'm finally at a place in my career where I feel like 
I know how to move the pieces around. I know how to manage up. I know how to manage across and down. I know how to make stuff come into the world. I know how to manage a PL. Like I would feel more ownership, I think, and more connection to what we did at Warner if I was felt like I was a more accomplished executive at that time. But it's fun to hear you connect, you know, where they are to what we did because oh, forget we it. were breaking new ground. And and for me, there was a period of time there, and I, I'm not even sure how long the period lasts, but it lasted. But there was a period of time there where I remember saying to people in the moment, "I am in full control of my superpowers right now." Like this is the fully articulated version of what I'm capable of at this point in time. It, it was the application of everything I had done before, and I was learning new capabilities at such a rapid clip. It was it was really amazing. But the other thing is the other answer then is also about making it about other people. Like I'm, I've always been comfortable saying if it goes well, it's because of those people. And if it goes poorly, it's because of me. Like I don't mind taking responsibility and being accountable and doing the hard, like living up to the problems. Yeah. I think I learned a lot of that from Mark Norman and Michael Cole when I took over ultra star there was a period of time I remember going in every day and finding a new problem and they were not cheap problems. Like I would find expensive problems every day and every day I would have to call up and make a difficult admission or present problems and, and come up with solutions. That's really good to go through. Like you can't hide problems. <laughs> you can't uh, not for long. Letting other people own the wins is really powerful. You build a lot of loyalty. You build a vibrant organization. And, and it's something I've been thinking a lot about lately. And I can't, I can't say it without it sounding gross. And I, so I'll qualify by saying I do not take credit for this. It makes me very happy to see where Jeremy Sirota and his career path has wound up. You know, we always joke like he was my lawyer at WIA, but he was he was like he was the closest thing you could have to a true like consigliere, right? He was such a good advisor and a good whisperer. Yeah. The micro point, and I and I want to go back to your macro point. Sirota was always a guy that I always wanted to work more closely with. I loved him. I, I still do. I'm thrilled that he's at Berlin. Right. I think he's a wonderful guy. But your your macro point, which is it is one of the great reflections on your leadership, one's leadership, when the people who you've led go on to be in charge, go on to be leaders of their own, right? Have successful careers. Yeah. I saw Matt Young last weekend at the Rolling Stones. He runs Bravado now. And like, you know, if you're gonna be in that world, he's at the top of that world. Totally. And I didn't do that. He did that but he was on my team. You know, it's like, I'm, I'm happy that somebody who is on my team is at the top of his heap now. And the story hasn't been written yet, but Dan Goldberg might be about to go do something very similar at fanatics. Um, he's either going to fail spectacularly and it's going to be an amazing run and he'll probably have no regrets about it, or he's going to do something. He's going to create a new business. Yeah, he's he's definitely got the platform there. I hope that I, you know. I hope that they will give him the room to do something that is not sports, because they are laser focused on sports right now. But I'm but I'm definitely rooting for him because he's a wonderful guy. I mean, look, you know, Dan almost got bounced out of Warner when we were going through the changes, and and he was at Roadrunner, 
And I was like, this is not a guy we should lose. This is a guy we should keep around. And we were able to keep him. And I'm thrilled that he had the run he had with you for those many years and even after. Yeah, um, it's weird to say that here because I don't know what he knows, but I remember having the conversation where I said, please give him to me. Yeah. So we might have to edit that out. Right. It worked out for him. <laughs> well, I don't want to take anything away from anybody else's success, though, because that's the thing. Like those guys worked their asses off. And when I left there, they took it to the next level. And the people that they're leaving with, I don't know the circumstances by which any of them have left. I can I can imagine there's different feelings. The group of people that that are taking over at the leadership level there, from 10,000 feet away, it looks pretty fucking impressive. Like there's an interesting, at the very least, it's interesting, like really interesting executives generationally from a gender perspective, racial perspective, like they're going to have, they're going to have a group of people there that looks unlike, didn't, doesn't look like when I was there. And that's exactly what they need, right? Like new people, new, new voices, new experiences. I, I, I'm excited about it. I think it's a really cool thing and I'm glad they're doing it. That's great. So we talk a, a lot about success and all the new ground and all the great things we've done. What's your biggest failure? Professionally or personally? <laughs> um, I, 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 I don't fail. I have, I, have, I have massive setbacks. I would have to look up the definition of failure because I'm not really sure I know what it means. I know when things feel bad and they, they don't feel like they've reached their full articulation. And, you know, nobody wants to, nobody gets married to get divorced. Nobody starts a business to have it shut down. Mm-hmm. nobody enters into a business relationship to have it go sideways. But I think, I think my biggest failure would be, it's like a series of little mistakes. Like I haven't always managed relationships well, like within the business, like I'm pretty dogmatic when it comes to that. Like if I don't want to deal with you, I just don't deal with you. And that's not really savvy. Yeah. Nobody starts to end up in, in a place they don't want to end up. And along the way, mistakes are made that result in an unintended outcome. Typically, I mean, I guess, you know, yes, the definition of failure, but when score big hit the wall um, and we hit the wall hard, despite everybody's best effort and so many near misses on getting the capital we needed to keep the business going, crazy, bizarre outcomes. The end of the business happened right at the time I was on my way to a a conference that was held in Hawaii every year called The Lobby, which is an invitation-only, relatively exclusive conference of a lot of Silicon Valley executives, venture capitalists, mostly very successful people. And they always wanted a little bit of entertainment in there. So somehow I got invited into that. And I was terrified about showing up as the newly crashed and burned executive where all these you know billionaires were hanging out. But the, the way the conference works is during the day, there are a series of conversations that are had a a dozen or so on a golf course in like these conversation circles of beanbags. And you sign up for, to, to host a conversation and maybe everyone will come, maybe no one will come. Right. And the conversations vary from like psychedelics to workplace culture to gambling. You know, Goldie was there actually once and did a a talk on um, the past to getting gambling legalized. And and they asked me if I, as I was coming, if I would do a talk. And I was like, yeah, I want to do a talk about failure. 
I want to do a talk about like, what is, how do we live with failure in this world of scoreboard measurement? You know, I'm, I'm a billionaire and or I'm a unicorn. It was my way of, of processing it. And I asked the question, you know, what's your biggest failure? And that was a clearly pointed business question in, in the circle. And there were about, there were probably like 15 or 20 people in the conversation circle. And I said, can we go around and just everybody like confess your biggest failure? And the first guy to my left, and I said, like, I was, you know, chief commercial officer at score big. We just lost all the money and left all these people holding tickets. It was a terrible ending. And I feel really embarrassed about it. And the guy next to me says, yeah, I raised $250 million to launch a hardware business. And we hit the wall before I ever shipped our first unit. And they, as we went around, everybody had a, a moment of just going for something and just totally screwing it up. And I was like, fuck, all these really successful people by any number of measures have all had some spectacular flame out. And so it's funny to hear you say, I don't fail or I haven't had a failure. I've had setbacks. And I think that's a fair way to characterize it, right? Like failure is a little bit maybe judgmental. And if you're still in the game, you're going to have setbacks. Some of them are going to be more visible than others. And as long as you're not a total asshole and the failure wasn't yours because you made it about you, but it was yours because you owned it because it was your responsibility. You were accountable for it, but you didn't embezzle the money, right? You didn't sexually assault the employee. You just weren't, you know, you didn't Harvey Weinstein. What's your biggest setback? Well, let me just, before I answer that, what I would say to that then is none of the things I've, that I've been involved with that are successful were totally my doing. So it's like, then, then the things that didn't go well could not have been totally my doing. Yeah, I could have made different decisions. Like, I've definitely played a role in lots of dumb things, but if I can't own the win 100%, then the failure is not 100% mine. Like Failure is definitely a team effort. I, I think about it in terms of, well, what's the what's the saying about comedy it's like tragedy plus time or something like that failure is like it's it's like it's it only feels like a failure when you're close to it right like once you have perspective you can unpack it and you could you could look at score big and say well maybe i could have done xyz differently but it really was fucked up because we were strangled by xy like it, it's you can figure out what went wrong over time it's just when it's acute it sucks and it hurts you know, I think for me, like my, I think about like setbacks and failures in terms of things like I'm not a visionary, so I, I, I don't see big picture very well, or like I don't know how to turn one dollar into fifty million. Like I just don't have that magical capability. I don't know how to pick winners necessarily. My biggest like objective failure of like, like if you were looking at my career would be like I don't know how to monetize what I do very well. That that's a that's a For failing. Yourself? Yeah, I don't know if it's a failure. It's a failing. I optimize my curiosity and my interest more than I do my financial interest. But that, to some extent, is a choice. It, it didn't start as a choice. It became a realization, and it's probably remained a choice. But you know, when you get towards the the end, when you're closer to the end than you are the beginning, it's a drag to realize that. Yeah, it's funny. I mean, I got to tell you, I I feel to some extent a little bit the same way. I'm starting to learn the lesson later in life, of the value of compound interest, right? And staying in things longer and staying with things. You know, my current tenure at Live Nation is the longest tenure I've had at any place I've ever worked. I don't think up to this point, I've been anywhere longer than four years. 
And, you know, the pandemic really put that to the test. There, there, there were definitely some moments where either voluntarily or involuntarily, I, I, I could have been out of a job. I'm aspiring to the value of compound interest here. I like the role I'm in. I think there's longevity to it. And I think I optimized my curiosity, but also I was chasing a little bit the next big thing or where I thought I could make a buck or accelerate my career, right? The, the ladder climbing. But then you get the guys who are, you know, who, who find themselves riding a unicorn. There's a lot of luck and a lot of good timing and a lot of breaks that go into that. So I don't beat myself up too, too much about not being a billionaire already. I was luckily blessed with the realization that it's, it's never good to count other people's money. That'll make you insane. And we have friends that do that. And I, I've said to them, like, there's never any reason why somebody else hit it. Like, and you didn't, but I treated my career like the lottery. And I kept thinking like, I'm going to hit it in one of these times and I haven't hit it and I probably won't hit it, but that's okay now. Like I, I'm all right. Like it's, I get to do interesting things. I know how to manage money better than I did even 10 years ago. So like, as long as it, there's always more work. So as long as there's work, I'll be fine. So, let, so let's close on, let's close on your current project, which is Bowie 75. I think there's the project itself. And then again, your relationship to one of my all time favorite artists. And I think for many people, like, you know, if you're into music, it's hard not to be into Bowie. How does, how does that come about? Like you hit the lottery on the stones and you're exec producing Keith. We heard the story about Bowie net, but how do you get a creative connection to Bowie? It's one thing to be the marketing genius behind his failed ISP, but but how do you get to work in a creative capacity with this genius? There's no measure by which Bowie Net was a failure, by the way. The only reason it doesn't <laughs> exist any longer is that it was sold <laughs> to your current employer. First of all, go to the New York one. Go to the New York. If you can, I'm going to. Please yeah, go no, to the New I'm York going one. to. I'm going to. I don't know that there are many people who aren't involved with the project who have been to both. And I think that my perception is that the New York one is much better. Um, and I'm re I really want to hear from some people that have been to both. I'm in love with it. Like it breaks my heart every day that I'm not there all day, every day. I think it's incredible. And uh, what is it? It's Bowie 75 is two experiential retail locations. One in Soho in New York, which is around the corner from where David lived and raised his family. And the other is on Hedden Street in London, it used to be called an alleyway, but gentrification now it's it's no it's no longer an alley. No. It's the street where the album cover for The Rise and Fall of Ziggy Stardust and the Spiders from Mars was shot. So there's the front cover of David and the back cover of him peering through the phone box. We are right there. The phone box is basically near our entrance. The plaque commemorating where David stood for the album cover is across the alley from us. Stroke of genius by the estate to pick that, to insist on that street or nothing in London. In fact, it's why we're also not in Berlin, because initially we were going to be in Berlin as well, but we couldn't find a suitable retail location in the neighborhood where David lived. And we didn't want to be in Berlin just to be in Berlin any more than we wanted to be in New York just to be in New York. Like we, we could have done this much cheaper if we decided to be in hipster Brooklyn, but we're in the heart of the shopping district in Soho because it's where David lived and walked the streets and shopped and 
hung out. And so that's why we're there. And so they're stores, they're retail locations, but they have, you know, more modern experiential elements that I think people like in retail now. So there's reasons to go other than if you're a collector or if you're a curious music lover or what have you, there are things to do within the stores that help you interact with the music or interact with David in kind of like fun little ways. And what was the impetus for creating it? Why now? Why this? What does success look like? Well, the practical reason was, you know, January 8th, 2022 would be David's 75th birthday. Mm -hmm. And so the estate wanted to do something fun and creative within some pretty specific parameters. So like we don't endorse any live shows. There's no official David Bowie tribute show or touring act or event. There's lots that are out there that involve people that worked with David and they're all great but they're not officially stamped. There's already been an exhibition, a very acclaimed one that people love. And so we didn't want to do like a small version of that because that would just be like, why create a lesser experience? Yeah. So it became, what can we do in the real world? And the idea of two pop-up shops emerged pretty early on by one of the managers of the estate. And because David's birthday is in early January, it became sort of self-evident of, well, we should take advantage of the holiday season as well. So that's sort of like the, the mechanical why, but the brand why is, and it, and it start, starts to answer your question as to what success looks like, kick off a year long's worth of celebration for David Bowie's 75th. When we close, we'll be announcing other things that will be going on under the Bowie 75 moniker. So have a reason to introduce that concept as a marketing and, and sales promotional concept. There will be different creative projects, commercial projects, archival reissues, all kinds of things, collectibles, brand collaborations, but really also kick off an initiative to engage with a younger audience. That's why we have some of the experiential elements in the store. They involve social media moments, technology, QR codes, interactivity, trying to meet the younger audience where they are, let them interact tangibly, but let them also have that sort of digital experience that people, you know, that's important now. So, you know, a year from now, are his streaming numbers up? Are his social numbers up? Is engagement up? It's not like a 90 day PL did the store make money. It's more about, are we elevating David Bowie's awareness and brand and engagement really to kick off the next one, two, three, five years of, David's legacy. And, and do you have any early indications about engagement by younger audiences? Yeah, it's interesting. I don't have a list of empirical things to quote, but I can give you a lot of anecdotes, which is there's a few of them. One is in the stores. It's really amazing that families are coming in. I mean, it's not surprising, but it's really cool to see it in reality happening. So dads come in with their teenage daughters or whole families come in. That's very, very cool. We actually had last weekend over the holiday weekend, there was a kid, he's 14 years old, lives in Philadelphia, and his mom drove him up to the store last Friday or Saturday. And we have a video of him. We have a discography wall in the store with all of David's albums listed in order. The kid's standing at the discography wall with his back to the wall, and he names every David album in order in the year it came out, and he's 14 years old. So that's a pretty good measurement of success. We know that there's young fans out there and we just want to cultivate them. 
But also we've been doing a lot of promotions where you have to use a specific hashtag on socials and people are engaging with that. And when I look at who's doing it, it's a lot of younger faces. It's a lot of multi-ethnic faces. So if the audience is out there and we're connecting with it and we're giving it a forum to present itself, I've had this sort of, this line I like to use. There's still people that are like world-class Shakespeare scholars emerging or the biggest Chopin fan or Mozart aficionado. There's no reason to believe that the biggest David Bowie fan is 60 years old or 70 years old or has already been born. Like the biggest fan may still be out there waiting to be discovered. And so we need to provide the forum for that person to become visible, to learn about it all. Like we have to keep this artistry out there because there's so many artists. Like it's a whole other pet peeve of mine of like how many artists legacies have not been curated well, have not been caretaken well, who were massive in their day and are essentially forgotten. So it's a lot of work to keep it relevant and make sure that we, you know, we keep printing new fans. There are businesses emerging, right? Jeff Jampol has long had a, a, a roster of estates that he manages and curates. Endeavor launched one recently. Phil Sandhouse, I think, is leading that, right? I think it's called Iconic. It seems like this is a now burgeoning or beginning to burgeon component of the music business, which is estate management. Is this about Bowie's going to be here? We're going to do this. We're going to focus on this. Is there a bigger business here in curating estates or is that sort of not on the radar for you? I've talked about it a lot over the last eight or 10 years with different colleagues and friends. I think it's difficult because if you think about how many people want to think about their own passing and then planning for it, it's a small number of, not a small number of people. I mean, people have wills and things like that, but it's, it's a difficult topic to broach. And then you think about the subset of rock stars who want to do that. And it's very difficult to get them to do not financial estate planning, but like here's where my papers go. Here's what I authorize from my archive. Here's what I want to have happen. I think it's very, very difficult to have those conversations. I actually think business managers and lawyers are uniquely suited to do that more so than personal managers or agents. But I would love there to be a more programmatized approach to that. But I don't know how realistic it is. The other sides of that to me are I think we're going to see when some of these classic rock artists pass, especially ones that are in bands, that it's going to be very difficult because their children don't all get along and the children of the artists don't all get along with each other. I think there's going to be a lot of stasis. There's going to be a lot of inferior product for a while or no product. That's what I'm most scared about is that there won't be release schedules and we'll skip a generation or we'll miss five or 10 years. But Bowie's unique because, you know, I'm not privy to to how the estate's decisions are made or how the estate's structured or run. But I think that it's generally known that David left instructions. You know, he knew he was dying. But even before that, he was a very good curator of David Bowie. I don't mean that just in terms of like his outward persona. He collected David Bowie material, ephemera recordings, bootlegs, fan art, folk art, promotional material. He had a very rich archive of stuff. He was the world's biggest David Bowie collector. I don't know that empirically, but I think. And so David left instructions and we're still seeing like the recorded music output 
a lot of it is, if not all of it, is stuff that David said to do. And so he was just a mature, responsible adult, I think, in that regard. Again, I'm, I'm stretching a little bit the limit of what I know for sure, but you know, he left instruction. And if we don't know how he felt about something, we don't do it. He was a guy who could see, who could separate himself from his persona, right? The characters he, he inhabited throughout his career and treat them as, as artifacts. It's amazing to me to think about what the last six, nine, 12, 18 months of his life must have been like when you think about he created Black Star. He was involved in the rollout of a musical play. The exhibition was still going and he wasn't really involved with that in any meaningful way, but that was out there. He was dying and he knew it. He was managing that in terms of having his the people that were most important to him understand that it was meant to be private. And then he was doing whatever planning he was doing, all while probably trying to spend time with his family. Like, I can't even imagine. And again, I don't have any unique insight into any of this. I'm not an insider in that way. But that's enough information alone to just like scratch your head and really think about that. It's heavy. I, I go back to his music a lot and and keep finding stuff that I didn't get the first time around. There were, there were eras of his that I just, I didn't pay attention or I heard them at the time and I didn't like it. And I go back now and I'm like, holy shit, this is, there's like no asterisk here. This is great music. It was me. It wasn't him. I, I didn't get it at the time. And I look back at how he lived and carried himself. And it's, it's really stunning. I, I don't say that to like sanctify him, but he's a really amazing person, especially the last like 20 years of his life, the futurism, the things he talked about, the way he behaved, the way he stepped out of the limelight, the way he raised his family, the way he put out his last several records and made no comment, did no publicity, did not talk about them, just let the work speak for itself. It's really amazing. He's really an amazing character. I'm so, I'm so immersed in his universe right now that it's hard to, it's hard to have much perspective, but it's, it's really amazing. You know, I think again, the stones and Keith and, and Bowie, like it's a, if you're a lucky man, karma is a bitch for some, but it's been good to you. I hope that the, the stakeholders ultimately view it as successful because it's been, it's probably been it's been the most amazing thing I've been involved with. The ability to to have any role and to be able to put a little bit of a fingerprint on it has been really amazing. Well, I can't wait to see New York. I'll, I'll for sure report back. This is fun. I'm glad to be able to interview you on your 100th episode. Thanks. It's a fun reflection of our relationship, which has had many facets to it. Congratulations on 100, man. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah, man, we've had a lot of fun. We really have. It's pretty wild. Thank you so much, David Marcus, for the friendship and for bringing your inquisitiveness to our talk. You are loved. Thank you, Aunt Taylor and the team at Light, both for providing the forum and for the resources to make 100 episodes possible. And as always, thank you for listening to Spotlight On. You've listened, you've shared, you've helped promote, you've shared feedback, and all you've done is appreciated. Hopefully it's been worth your time. Join us again next week for the first of our next 100 episodes. 
In the meantime, be safe and stay in touch.